0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Megan Abbott, author of the novels Die a Little, The End of Everything, The Fever, and You Will Know Me, among others. Her writing has also appeared in the New York Times, LA Times, Salon, and the Wall Street Journal. You Will Know Me tells the story of a high school age gymnast prodigy, Devin Knox, and her parents, who will do anything to see her succeed. The Knoxes are dedicated to their daughter's coach and her gym and the community, but they see it all in a new light when a young man who worked at the gym died from a hit-and-run accident. The mystery around his death causes many ties in the community to unravel, and particularly those within the Knox family. The novel is told from the mother, Katie's point of view, and we began the discussion talking about the impetus for the novel. I'd
1: always sort of been interested in, in prodigies and fam, especially families of prodigies. And uh, I guess it was five years ago now, um, it was the London Olympics, and uh, I was watching the gymnastics, and there were um, Allie Risemond on um, one of the American gymnast. Her parents were seen in the stands um, watching her and there was sort of this viral footage of them watching because they were so nervous and so intent. And they were sort of doing her moves as she did her moves and mimicking them. And uh, um, and it, it was fascinating. And, uh, you know, everyone was sort of making fun of it online or criticizing them or, uh, you know, it, it sort of became this sort of tempest. Um, and so the people's response to them was just as interesting to me as them. So I started to think about that kind of parent and that kind of marriage and what that does to a family, all that focus on one child's talent. So so that was kind of where it started.
0: And were you ever a gymnast?
1: No, not at all. I have no athletic ability. And I, I write about sports a lot. And I, it must be some kind of, at this point, I have to say it's some kind of wish fulfillment because um, I've never had a relationship with my body where I could make it do what I want at all.
0: So when you decided to tell this story, which is the story of the Knox family, Katie and Eric and their two children, Drew and Devin, and Devin is the gymnastic prodigy and Drew is the younger brother who kind of tags along all the time. You told the, the, the story basically through Katie's perspective. Was it a challenge for you to choose who, who you wanted to see this story through?
1: Yes, I actually changed it, you know, about a third of the way in. I originally was going to have both parents' points of view and then I toyed with having Devin's point of view too and I would move between them, but ultimately they were all fighting each other uh and it felt like it felt like um a lot, we have a lot of judgments, I think, about moms in general, but especially um, the sort of stage mom cliches. And um, so I, I thought that I really wanted her to be sympathetic and full-bodied. And, and so giving her the whole story, I think, was the only way to enable that. So, So I stuck with her.
0: I mean, I was thinking when I read it, I, I, I was curious at times. I was like, I wonder what this is like from the father's perspective or the right. daughter's perspective.
1: And, you know, one of this, I guess, sort of sub thoughts in my head throughout is sort of the mysteries of, of marriage when, when there's a parenting situation, especially a heightened parenting situation, you know, um, when you're in both in some ways, you know, who is who takes care of the special daughter more? Who is, you know, who is the greater force in their life? That sort of weird competition that there can be among parents.
0: When you set out to write this, did you have any preconceived notions of what it would be like to parent a kid? And when you were writing it, do you sort of go in other directions? What was the... Maybe what did you maybe learn along the way? A
1: lot. I, you know, I don't have kids and um, in in some ways that made it more challenging, in some ways less because I could have more uh, little distance from it. Um, But there was a book that was very important to me, which is um, Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree, which is a a nonfiction book, came out maybe five years ago about parents, um, parents, in particularly intense situations, either the child has suffers from a disability, or in one case had been a criminal. Another, um, in, in a few cases, were prodigies, um, and it was about the challenges of parenting and how parents dealt with it. And that that it felt very, it was a very generous book and very complicated and tricky. And it, that kind of opened the door for me for a lot of ways of looking that looking at it and you know and also drawing a little bit on my experiences with my parents who uh, my brother was very successful athlete when I was growing up a a baseball player um and I was more like the Drew character the sibling in the book um sort of observing so I so I did draw on that quite a bit too how my parents handled it which is which is different than how Katie and Eric do (laughs) but um but was another way of thinking about it
0: so one of the major impetuses of this story in Devin's life and for her parents could could be guilt. I'm curious to hear what you say about that. But when she was three, she was, you know, before she was anything, before they really saw her as any talent or anything, she was just this toddler. She walked into a lawnmower and lost part of her foot. And I'm just curious about deciding to have maybe an inciting incident for her to then be recommended to go to gymnastics. Why was this important in the story?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I I was surprised at how many of these sort of, um, especially not even just athletic prodigies, but how many prodigy star stories have an inciting incident like that. I mean, we kind of know it from the Olympics, right? When they do those specials where they explore the how how the how the talented athlete got to this stage, and there's often something like that, um, some kind of challenge, because that's a story we kind of like about athletes. But I'm surprised how often. It's true Uh, Then I was reading about This uh, Elaine Zayak, Who was a very successful ice skater In the 80s and, And she did have an incident with Um a lawnmower, and that's how she she came to ice skating. And I was fascinated by the parents, how important it was to them that they gave her this ice skating uh, to make up for. You know, parents always feel guilty when anything happens to their children. Um, so that had become part of their story that it had to happen. This terrible accident, as terrible as it was, had to happen, or she never would have discovered her talent. And I thought that was really interesting, um, and would contribute to. I guess sort of the complexity of the of the parents um, in the book, that it's not just that they're overly ambitious for their child, um, that there's really there's really something very um, poignant about it to me that they want to want to fix this, you know, thing that happened to their child.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Megan Abbott, author of the novel You Will Know Me. She joined me via Skype. In the book, Katie and Eric were young, and they weren't married, and she got pregnant. And it comes up several times. One is, like, you're given from the beginning sort of this fierce love that she has for Eric. But then you also learn that, not that she trapped him, but I don't think she was upset about it, but they got married because she was pregnant with Devin, and he seems to have some really deep regrets about what sex can lead to, not 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 that it leads to love, <laughs> but that it leaves it leaves leads to almost like a handcuff. Can you talk about that theme in there?
1: Yeah, it it seemed um, sort of my impulse was in some way that. Um, as I was thinking about these these marriages when there is a special child and it really strains a marriage for a num- in a number of ways and it also can, can, can distort it, um, where they're kind of partners in the effort that is their child's success. You know? so it can, it can kind of it can kind of cloud the picture of themselves as a couple and certainly as a romantic couple. And I think that that in some ways is what happened with with Katie and Eric, and I think, um, you know, I think for Katie, who maybe, who, you know, loves her husband perhaps more than he loves her, or in a different way, that this would be part of her anxiety, that she needs her, Devin to succeed, because Devin is the thing that keeps them together, they got married because of her, and, and um, Eric's guilt over the lawnmower thing, and and Eric's investment in Devon's success means they'll they'll stay together, you know. Um, so it's a sort of a. In some ways, I think it's a way of keeping him there. So I sort of wanted that element to be there too. That it's not a perfect marriage, but it's not. Um, it's not an ugly marriage. It's just uh, like all marriages. It's 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 um in shades of gray.
0: One of the things that struck me about this was how the gap between a parent and a child and how little you know your child. I think Katie and Eric pushed for gymnastics so hard, but there there were also moments where Katie realized how different her daughter was. She went to school once and saw her daughter sitting in class and she was so undeveloped um, compared to the other girls. She saw people being mean to her. She was sometimes, her daughter was sometimes described as an ice queen. And I'm wondering if you think that she, did she know her daughter?
1: Yeah. And, and do you ever really, once, once they're a teenager in some ways, um, in some ways I was interested in that moment as I've talked to so many people about that, the moment when um, they first look at their child age 12, 13, 14, whatever the age is, and they realize that for the first time they have no idea what's going on in their child's head, you know, and, I, and it's sort of a, it's sort of a moment of grand tragedy for a lot of parents, I think. So in some ways I think it's just that, but that, that it's much harder for Katie because they are so much closer to their daughter than any other parents. Cause there's, you know, their whole world is built around her. So part of it was that. Um, and then the other part of it, I think is that um, there, it is an isolating life to, to, you know and that came up a lot I read a lot of athlete memoirs and prodigy memoirs and you know, there is something very isolating about it in terms of peer development that, that's just part of it and they you know it's sort of from for a lot of uh Athlete prodigies, they become very self-contained. Um, they learn how to shut things down in themselves to, to win, to achieve, to, as a part of discipline. So I wanted all that to be in there too um, and how hard that would be for, for everybody, but probably especially for Devin, for the
0: daughter. <laughs>
1: um, you did have to sort of shut off
0: so much of life. Who do you think Devon really was?
1: I think she is a teenager and people keep forgetting that teenagers make impulsive decisions and, um, you know, operate from their body and their impulse. And, uh, um, but, uh, you know, but I think if you, if you've grown up, Almost exclusively with one aim or objective, um, and you think it's the thing you want. Um, but at a certain point, everyone is so invested that you would no longer know if that really was what you wanted. You know, uh, what desired What does desire mean when everything in your life, since you, before you had memories, is built around your talent? Um, you know, so I think in some ways she hasn't really found found an identity separate from her talent. And that's really hard and, and, and really sad. Um, So I have a lot of sympathy for her.
0: One of the things that I thought was interesting, because you do include the other parents of gymnasts, there's a weird kind of competition going on, of course, between these parents and their kids, and they all want their kids to succeed. But I also felt like they all paid deference To Devin and her family like Devin was the star and they were really supporting the star because they felt like the star would help the gym would then help their girls but I was I was kind of surprised at how they weren't more catty about being mean to Devin but rather kind of put her on a pedestal for their needs
1: yes I mean it, it, there's something kind of mercenary about it that uh, but also kind of genuine uh I found this a lot in in the books I read um you know because they they think that there's a trick to how, katie and eric did it like something they're doing made Devin this way or something some way they raised her some way they you know constructed their house you know or their home gym or all these things so they want to kind of replicate that um but they're also very you know gym, gymnastics like some sports but not all is that weird mix of individual and team so that has they have to operate as a team but that but they all want to succeed as individuals. So there's a tension attention there. So, I mean, if she rises, everybody rises. So there's a, there's no benefit in being catty about it, though. I think there definitely is some cattiness, but, uh, but I think that in the end, they're very pragmatic, which is the other thing that sort of interested me that they've sort of decided that, um, that, Devin's success benefits them, um, and they they want to replicate it, and they want to um, hitch their lasso to her star um, because it will help their
0: child. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Megan Abbott, author of the novel You Will Know Me. She joined me via Skype. So we have this, you know, child prodigy, she's working hard at gymnastics, you see a lot of the dynamics with gymnastics, but the human element and the drama really comes in with some of the interpersonal relationships in the gym. So basically, there's a mystery at the heart of this book, which is that their coach who they love, Teddy, has a... Uh, niece Haley who had a troubled youth who lives with him and she had a boyfriend named Ryan who hung out at the gym and did odd jobs he was had a little bit of a troubled past but was kind of a friend to everyone in the gym and was handsome and the moms liked him and the kids liked him and he is involved um, he dies in a hit and run and that becomes kind of the other plot running through this Can you talk about that as a plot device, why that's what you chose and what you wanted to sort of dig out from that incident?
1: Yeah, there were sort of two things. One was sort of, um, I was really fascinated by how insular these gym communities are, and not exclusive to gymnastics, but with all sports where the um, high intensity um, competitive situations and how how they become kind of they, – they make their own rules, um, and they hang out only with each other. I, I've talked to so many – since since the book came out, so many people that in different sports that experience this, and I know I did when I was a kid with baseball, where only – all the baseball parents hung out together. They socialized only with each other. They had message boards, and, and so I wanted – I wanted, um, to have an outsider to that world. And so Ryan became mad. His no, uh, he's, just, you know, kind of a random association with the gym. He does do these odd jobs and he's kind of this sort of eye candy for, for the girls and the, and the moms. Um, but he's, uh, uh what happens when an outsider in some ways, um, is a threat ultimately. And what happens to him threatens uh, to sort of take them all off their game because everyone's focused on the accident and the death. So uh, th- that was sort of the way to sort of really look at this kind of community by showing it in crisis uh, because an outsider has um, has sort of torn the seam, so to speak. And then the other piece that I was really interested in was that, that there would be, you know, because one of the things that the gymnast in particular, um, because um, really elite gymnast- gymnastics involves, in some ways, halting puberty for a lot of girls. Um, and I was very interested in adding a. Uh- a, um, a, a sexual object of desire um, amid this sort of world where girls are, are not really having that much peer interaction and are not really being able to experience some of that early stuff of the early teens of, um you know, of, of you know, sex. So, so that, so I wanted some kind of, uh, he's sort of, that's his other function in the book, I think.
0: I wanted to ask about Devin and and Ryan,
1: you know, she obviously has a crush on him, and and there's questions about what you know. What where, where that crush may or may not have led. And that was really cool. I knew that was going to be a big part of the second half of the book. Um, you know, what happens when someone who has such a singular focus on their body experiences this sort of intensity of teenage desire. Um, so I wanted to see Devin experience some of that, but 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 we're seeing it from the outside. Her mom was probably missing so much of what the early signs of all of that were, you know, and how much as, as parents ultimately
0: you you probably should and do miss so much of that. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Megan Abbott, author of the novel, You Will Know Me. She joined me via Skype. Um, you know, Devin was teased by people at school who weren't in gymnastics. What are the ramifications of being so young and being so singularly into one thing.
1: Yes. No, that, that really fascinated me. In fact, after the book came out for the last, um, Last summer during the Olympics and with a gymnast uh, team this past year, um, I saw a lot of that the way that people would talk about the girls' bodies and how they were not feminine at all or they were too masculine in a way. And then there was, um, you know, one of the gymnasts had, had a crush on Zac Efron, who's sort of a teen idol. And Zac Efron came and ma- met the gymnasts. And, and though these gymnasts, some of them were 18, 20, uh, 21, um, they, it, it was in some ways like they were 13 uh, because of the way that I, the, the way it was staged. It was staged as if they should scream because this teen idol was there, you know. Um, and it was sort of, it was this weird ambiguity because I think some of the the girls that are who are now women, um, you know, uh, didn't really want to play that part. But in some ways, it was sort of expected of them that they're kind of arrested, and they look—they're so tiny, and they, they, you know, they don't have breasts and hips, you know. So it, all of that is so is so strange and disorienting, I think, for for a young woman. And so I wanted to play with a lot of that f- with Devon. Um, you know, like the feelings. You know, even if you're even if your your body is in some way. You and this hard object, this hard fleet object, uh, but the, you're still uh, you're still going through puberty in a way, you know? Uh, and so that, that was something I really wanted to explore.
0: One of the things I was interested right from the beginning when we're introduced to Drew, the little brother, who kind of just tags along, and I thought, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he is like the absolute forgotten child. And I'm just wondering about your your exploration of this little brother and what you sort of thought about before you created him on the page and what he revealed to you on the page.
1: Yes. He was meant to be a much more minor character. When I started, I felt like I Uh, was cheating by not having a sibling and I was really interested in siblings and prodigy situations. Um, So I wanted to have a sibling and and then I grew very attached to him. And so he started to occupy a larger and larger roles. I I felt so sorry for him. And then I became intrigued by the idea that perhaps in some way he was the real prodigy and that the parents didn't see it because they were so distracted by Devin because he's very smart and very precocious. And it's, uh, and, and very intellectually curious and very observant. So so then I realized it was a great way to explore how, how all parents can in some ways be, you know, sometimes it's the troubled child that gets all the attention. Sometimes it's the perfect child who does something. But there's, you know, in a lot of families, there is a, a, a big gap, you know, just never, it, doesn't all, it never gets distributed evenly. But in this case, that it would be extreme. And, that, and that, so he was important to show us that, that they were missing stuff.
0: Well, well, one of the aspects of this book that I felt like was a theme underwriting, and you mention it a little bit towards the end. So, it, you you open the 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 novel, and and you kind of mention that there's these three moments that changed their life. It was, you know, a moment where Devin hurt her foot, a moment when she wobbled on a on a on a landing at the vault, and it it messed with her confidence, and then when they put in. Um, a pit, which can help you land softer while you're practicing. And these were sort of the three things that led to this story. And then at the same time, more towards the end, you're talking about the precision of gymnastics and that if you wobble or if you move your hand or if you stumble, that will change your fate. And I felt like there was this very fatalistic element running through that, that a moment, a single moment can change your life. Same thing with um, Ryan being hit by a car that your life is made up of these moments that in some ways you might not have control over.
1: Yes. Yes. No, it's a haunting notion and it, and it did fixate me. I was fixated on I was. Uh, writing the book um, because of the gymnastics and then because I was reading a lot about hit and runs. you know because they're both sort of versions of that where um, you know a jerk of the arm or the hand or the let you know or you know all these things um, and then your life changes in an instant and, and, and that it's like it's the kind of thing that we have to forget about in our regular life or we could not go on you know um, but if you're a gymnast you can't not think about it you think about it constantly um, and and uh, And so it just throws into high relief um, a version of something that we we deal with a lot in, in regular life, but try to forget about, you know, you can't live your life that way or you would never leave the house. Um, but, but it was sort of haunted by the notion, um, of sort of upturning or ruining your life or, or, and also the notion that the family has this sort of lore or legend and the legend is based on these ideas of, um, one slip and everything changes,
0: um, which is, which is, um,
1: quite a cautionary tale to have to live with.
0: So can you get over those slips?
1: Yes, and I think that it's like a false notion, right? That that this is all riding on. Because of course you can, and uh, uh, it depends what you do with after those moments, you know. And then one of the sort of, you know, when Devin does have that foot bobble, the fall, the fall thing, um, you know, there, there was it didn't have to be that way, uh, you know. They, but they kind of, the parents kind of fumble it. Well, especially Kate, Katie in that case, kind of fumbles it, and uh, um, and then doesn't fix it. You know, it's so things don't get fixed, which can happen in a. Family family right like if you don't address something right away it starts to, you know everyone remembers it differently it festers in everyone differently and then you know 30 years later at a family reunion we're all shouting at each other you know
0: I think on the flip side though what's interesting and it, it is present in your book is um is success more important than maybe being slighted So you don't, on one hand, you want to not look at these baubles and these waves and putting the hand in the wrong place as something that changed the course of your life. But when you do have things that change the course of your life and ambition is stronger than that, what do you allow? Like what kind of um, mistreatment do you allow? What kind of actions are you willing to put up with other people? I mean, this gym had a major strife between all of the people and then- for the greater good of, of the success of Devin and all these girls, they just kind of overlooked it. And I was also couldn't believe that at the same time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's sort of, you know, the, the gym is sort of a, a microcosm and it, 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 and, you know, and that going back to that insularity, you know, they, they sort of have their own values and rules that they they abide by, um, and they're indip- And it's indip- In some ways, it's sort of a community within a community. Um, and they just don't abide by the rules outside. They abide by their own rules. And I think there's a there's a kind of blindness to that that's that's very dangerous. Um, um, it strikes me as very dangerous. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. But, um, these can be great communities, but um, they can also be like this and and that. You know, I never try. I try never to judge my characters and I don't even judge and even, you know, the 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 harshest of the gym moms has her reasons. But uh, but I do think that piece of it, um, of any community where um, they've just they've they're not experiencing enough of the world outside. They're in this bubble. We've been talking a lot about bubbles now as a nation, you know, how we get in our bubbles and we, we don't, um, we're, we're, we're hesitant to break out of them. And I think that's, that's a real problem.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Megan Abbott, author of the novel, You Will Know Me. She joined me via Skype. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yes. um, This is from uh, one of my absolute favorite writers, Daniel Woodrell. And this is a piece from his uh, book, uh, Death of Sweet Mister. Ed made me get out and paint the truck another color once we'd crossed the state line. His voice seemed to me always to have those worms in it that eat you once you're dead and still. His voice always wanted to introduce me to them waiting worms. He had a variety of ugly tones to speak in and used them all at me on most days. He whipped off a skinny country rock road and dove the truck down a slope of plain young weeds towards a creek that slobbered and swung under some trees for shade and parked. Glenda, which was my mom, rolled between him and me in the cab, smelling of her tea, as she called her rum and colas, and last night's sweat and this morning's perfume, her head pretty often soft on my shoulder and her breaths going up my nose. The weather looped around to where it was good again, too good to last long. It had prompted blossoms to unclench and wildflowers to pose tall and prissy amongst the weeds. The tree patch we'd swung under blocked the eyesight of any decent folk who might pass along and gain a curiosity about us if we were available to be seen. Our ways often required us not to be seen.
0: And tell me why you chose this.
1: He um, He's this wonderful writer um, from Missouri. One of his, several of his books have become movies, so people might know Winter's Bone, which became a movie. But he plays with language, as you can see from that passage, in such strange ways. He's You never know what he's going to do with words, and his sentences go on really long so much that you kind of lose your breath if you read them aloud. And I just feel like, and when I read him, I uh, if I get into writing ruts, he just breaks me out of them because everything is unexpected and strange wonderful.
0: Can you read something that you wrote that maybe it was tricky to write or change from the first draft or something that you just like?
1: Yeah, this is from a short story I wrote, and I'm just going to read the last tiny bit. But the challenge was it's about a man who's toddler daughter goes missing and he, in the course of the story, he begins to suspect his wife, Lori, has done something to his daughter and it turns out that she hasn't, and the daughter's returned safely. Um, But I wanted to write something at the end that, um, you know, nothing's really happened, but that something has happened because that journey he's gone on suspecting his wife has changed everything. So I'm just going to read the ending that I ended up with after doing many versions. It was very late, or even early, and Lori wasn't there. He thought she had gotten sick from all the wine, but she wasn't in the bathroom either. Something was turning in him, uncomfortably, as he walked into Shelby's room. He saw Lori's back, naked and white from the moonlight, the plum-colored underpants she'd slept in. She was standing over Shelby's crib, looking down. He felt something in his chest move. Then slowly she kneeled, peeking through the crib rails, looking at Shelby. It looked like she was waiting for something. For a long time, he stood there, five feet from the doorway, watching her watching their baby. He listened close for his daughter's high breaths, the stop and started them. He couldn't see his wife's face, only that long white back of hers, the notches of her spine. He watched her watching his daughter and knew he could never leave the room. He would be here forever now. There was no
0: going back to bed. Tell me about that, why you chose it.
1: Yeah, it was one of those where you, uh, you know, there's the story kind of ends with an anticlimax in some ways because you go through the whole story, it's his point of view, and you really think that the wife. Um, has done something. She's very suspicious, and uh, he doesn't really understand her. And so, but but then nothing's happened. So you want, but you want to you want to show that something really has happened. But it's quite subtle, right? That that now he will never lose the suspicion of his wife. That something in this journey has changed him. So. You, you know, I didn't want to really say that. I wanted to kind of show it with the way he was watching her. So, so it became a sort of exercise in some ways, in leaving stuff out, but in being very careful to make what is should be a lovely scene of his wife looking at their daughter return safely, would have this sinister cast. So it was a lot about about keeping stuff out, about word choice, about rhythm. Where do you write? At
0: home, almost exclusively. Never, never on
1: the road. I can never do it.
0: (laughs) And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Uh, I sneak into matinee movies (laughs) like like Don Draper used to on Mad Men. Uh, I find it's a a good palate cleanser.
0: Who do you show you work to first to get feedback?
1: my agent. Um, and not because he's my agent, but because he's, I so trust him. He's the, he just the, the reader I know who will be truthful with me.
0: Um, so he sees it first. And how have you dealt with rejection?
1: Beer, (laughs) sometimes wine. Um, you know, I've never gotten really good at it. Uh, but I, I, now I'm more used to it. And I know, I know to sort of take it in. Um, and I do know how it's important to, to, uh, Uh, see friends and socialize and remember that this isn't the only thing in the world uh, because it can feel that way when you get the rejection
0: and what is your favorite word
1: oh gleaming gleam gleaming gleams any version of gleam and uh, I always have my copy editor uh, tell me I've used it
0: too much in every book
1: (laughs) so I have to go through and take half of them out
0: you've been listening to First Draft a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio my guest was Megan Abbott She is the author of the novel, You Will Know Me. She joined me via Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.